Howdy. Everybody still doing well? Good. Three people are. That's good, though. That's a pretty good percentage. Uh, so I saw a couple weeks ago that the Reds brought up a, a new rookie, one of those highly touted pitchers who they drafted high, and they're like, oh, this guy's going to finally make us a good organization. Um, and so uh, he started pitching, and he's pitched a couple times, and, and he kept struggling with control. Like, he had great fastball, great, like, he could strike out people, but he just could not have control. He was walking too many people, hitting too many people. And so after about four games, the catcher finally came out, and he's like, hey, you know, I noticed that you kind of lose your control at the same point every game. And so, you know, we could talk about that, and the pitcher's like, oh, great, like, this is going to help me once if I can figure out that point. So when is it? And the catcher's like, right after the national anthem. So we are continuing the Amazing Acts series. And this is such a cool series, and it's so awesome that it follows everything with Easter and the Pentecost and all of the things that Jesus laid out for the new church. And the series is about the disciples, yes, and everything they did in those early days, but it's about the church, the capital C church, and what it means and what it did and everything that it went through and all that it brought forth into the world in his name. And we look at this and we see the history, and that's awesome. But it is also our call to continue to be that church, to continue to be those disciples, to continue to have those amazing acts, because this is still the day the Lord has made, and we still get to play a part in this. And so I want to go to uh, Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 60. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations, uh, that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? So this is Stephen talking to the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, to the leaders of religious, of the religious times, of the Jews, of everything in the faith. This was the house of worship, and he's talking to them. And he's laying out the history of the tabernacle, because that is what they meant the most to them in so many ways. Uh, way back when Israel was wandering in the desert, after they'd been freed from slavery in Egypt by God, by uh, sending Moses and going through the plagues and, and parting the Red Sea and doing all of these things that we know that were so powerful miracles. And then they complained and they whined. And so he sent manna and he sent water and he did all of these things. And he sent laws and, and, and instructions and uh, the way to build the tabernacle. And so it was a big thing to them, not just because God sent it and not just because it, it symbolized the covenant, but because when they actually built the portable tabernacle back in those days before they went into the promised land, uh, this was after the golden calf. So you see, after all the stuff God had done for them, Moses went up to talk to them and Israel started worshiping a golden calf after about five minutes because they got bored. And so even after that, there was punishment and redemption and all of these things. God still came to be with them in the temple, in the tabernacle, in his house. He still came to be with them. He showed that he's a redeeming God. He showed that he's a loving God. And so they carried that with them. Even once it became a permanent place, it was such an important thing to them. 
And so the Sanhedrin, they saw this as the holiest of holies. They saw this as where they went to meet God. And so Stephen is talking all about all of that because this means a lot to him. This is his history too. And he follows Jesus and he serves Jesus and he's a disciple. But this is still his history, his legacy, everything that came before him. And so it matters to him and he knows that it matters to them. And he's talking about it with them. Because they had come to think that in the tabernacle is where everything had to happen. You see, they wanted people to come to them before they would help them. They wouldn't go out and help people. If you notice, if you read through the Gospels uh, and Acts, most of the time when they complained and they yelled, and one of the big reasons they hated Jesus and the disciples is because Jesus and the disciples were out there. They were preaching to people out in public. They were healing people in public. They were eating with sinners. Now, what in the world could the church do with sinners? And so the, the Pharisees and the, the Sanhedrin, they're like, this is not going to stand. They have to come here first. They weren't doing anything to bring them in, but they're like, they have to come here. And so they were so angry and they were so holding on to that. Sometimes we kind of fall into that. Not, not necessarily the, the huge negatives there, but we think if only I could get this person to church, then I could really show them who Jesus is. If only I could get this person to, to come forward to the altar. If only I could get this person to walk into the doors. We want that. We do. And the church is awesome and it's beautiful and it's such an important place, but that's not the only place God is. God is everywhere and the church is everywhere. Everywhere outside these doors is still the church. We still get to be the church and that's what Stephen's saying. He's like, we still have to be examples. We have to give people a reason to come. We have to show them what happens in here, out there, so that they see it, so that they know that God is everywhere, so they know that it's not just a building, so that they know you can pray no matter where you are. You can worship no matter where you are. And again, church is important. But God is everywhere. And it's on us to show that. I have a quote. And I always put a lot of trust into the people running the slides in here because I can't see anything. And so for all I know, this could be a picture of me in a mascot costume or something, which I saw the Miami Heat mascot got knocked out the other day, which is what happens, I guess. But assuming the quote is there, we will never change the world by going to church. We will only change the world by being the church. Now, here's the honest and somewhat sad truth. We will never change the world anyway. We don't have that power. We don't have that ability. But we can go out and show the world the need to change. We can show them what that change did to us. We can show them how we have changed, how God ha has helped us to change, to be better, to, to grow closer to him. We can show the world what the church actually is, what it should be. And absolutely, we want people to come. We do. Because we feel something here. And this means a lot to us. And most of the people here grew up in the church or, or, or you came to the church at some point in life and it just really means something and it's awesome and the, the worship is exciting and everything is good. But there has to be a reason to come. There has to be a reason to be here. There has to be a, a change, a difference. It's so important to do everything we do here. We just talked about VBS and, and family promises going on and there's so many things that the church does and it's all good and it all makes a difference. 
But it's not just about that. You see, one of the things I say to the teens sometimes is imagine that you're in a circle of your closest friends and you're telling some iffy jokes and you're saying, just talking about people and making fun of them and doing all these things. And then you turn and you see somebody that you'd wanted to ask to go to church. What are they gonna say? I mean, if, if you can be just like the world and still stay home and sleep in on Sundays, like most people are gonna sign up for that. You see, occasionally you'll see things in the news about negative things that, that pastors or churches have done. The news is never gonna report on the good. They're not gonna report on Family Promise, on VBS, on the things that we do good, because that's not exciting. Not to, to the ratings and all of that. And a lot of people have been heard, or a lot of people uh, believe everything they see or hear, and all of that happens. So it's on us to show what the church really is. And we can do that in here, but only to the people that are in here. And what Jesus did, what Stephen is talking about, what the disciples did is they took it out there and showed people, hey, this is where God is. And this is where healing happens. And this is where worship happens. And this is where the church exists. And then we come here. Going to the next verse. You stubborn people. Uh, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. So Stephen goes hard here. And he's stepping on some toes. But he's not doing it in anger. He's not doing it as a show. He's not doing it in hatred. He's doing it out of frustration because the people in this room are supposed to be the leaders. They're supposed to be the, the people that bring God's word to the people, to help them to see God. They're supposed to be the leaders of the church. And when you are in a position of leading, when you're in a position of ministering to others, you're held to a higher standard. And if you look through the Bible, you'll see that over and over again, Jesus talked about the fact that if you are responsible for teaching someone, for helping someone, You've got a higher standard on you. You're responsible not just for your own faith, but to help them see what the difference is, what matters. Uh, I had a conversation with a friend this week about we often don't think about what the things we say, the things we do, the way we act, how it affects little children sometimes who are just watching. And we talked about the different political things and how each side will do these things and say these things and, and people will follow it and, and it'll get all out there and it'll be awful and kids are watching. And so in a way, we're all kind of in that position of leadership, of being examples. And so in this room, Stephen is not angry. He's frustrated because he wants them to get it. Can you imagine if the Pharisees had joined with Jesus instead of fighting against him? Now, God's plan is perfect, and he knew what was going to happen, and he knows how, how to help us and, and to empower us to do his work. But just imagine for a second, if the Pharisees, instead of saying, oh, how could you be like this? How could you talk to sinners? How could you help people? Had been like, Jesus, what do we do? 
Imagine how fast things would have grown, how much difference would have been made. In just the early days of the church, it magnified by a lot. It went from like 100 to 3,000. If the Pharisees are working with instead of against, man. And we still have this opportunity. And so he's so frustrated at that. And he calls them stiff-necked. It says stubborn in this translation, but it it comes from stiff-necked. And that's not an accident that he says that. Stiff-necked means uh, haughty or overly proud and stubborn. So both things. So egotistical and stubborn. And so he calls them that. Again, not from himself, but because that's what God called Israel in those days of the golden calf. And actually 20 times in the Old Testament, God called Israel stiff-necked. And he really calls them out. And so Stephen is saying this, hey, again, he's not saying it to insult them. He's saying to remind them, hey, God knows what you're doing. And he sees you and you can still come to him because even in those days, he still loved them. And he calls them heathens, and they defined heathen as someone who was uncircumcised, so a Gentile. And they were so proud of being circumcised because it separated them, and it made them better in their estimation. And so God, again, in those days said, be circumcised of the heart, which means make your heart separate, make your heart better, make your heart different. Be different than the world in your hearts, too. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they'd taken the wrong lessons from that. And they thought separate meant better. They thought because of what God did, they were special. And so Stephen is like, you think you're better. And you're acting like you're better. And you're acting like you're, you're these important, haughty people. But God does all of this. And he helps you. And he uses you. And anybody can do this. And you see, they'd been through tough times. Israel had been through horrible times. Persecuted, enslaved, exiled. All of these things happened over and over again, and God was still there, and he still helped them. But again, the Sanhedrin took all of that. And there are two ways you can respond to to things like that, to pain, to broken hearts, to, to struggling, to persecution. You can respond and say, you know what? I've struggled, so everybody else better struggle too. I've dealt with this, and I've been hurt by this, so they need to feel this too. They need to feel the same thing I feel. And you can do that, and that's what the Pharisees were doing. Or you can take it and be like, you know what? That was tremendously painful. I hope that my example can help someone else not have to go through that. I hope that my struggles can help someone else not have to deal with that and to learn in different ways and to see God through me. And that's what Stephen is saying. He's like, guys, you've been through this, but you're becoming everything you fought against. You're becoming, you're doing everything that had been done to you. And how do they respond? And this is astounding. These are grown adults, grown men, and they respond by shaking their fists and gnashing their teeth. They respond like children, little angry children. Now, that's hard for us to imagine. Uh, Imagine, just for a second, that Congress somehow reacted like children and acted like they were self... Never mind. I guess it's not that hard to imagine. But they weren't angry because he was wrong. They were angry because he was right. And they'd felt it because no matter what happens, no matter how people respond... If someone sees a true example of Jesus, they know it. 
They know that it's right. And some people respond with anger and with hatred like the Pharisees did. Some people respond by running away and hiding, and that happens. Some people respond, and this is why we do it, by allowing that seed to grow. And so they were so angry because they knew they had no real response. They couldn't argue it. They couldn't go against it because he was right. He used the scripture against them to show them the way. And so even in the midst of all of this, as these grown adults are are yelling and, and gnashing their teeth and angry, Stephen sees the greatest peace he could ever see. He sees heaven. And he sees Jesus smiling at him, standing there. Because he's being like Jesus here. And he feels it and he knows it. And the fact that he said this didn't erase their anger. It made it worse. Because they're like, whoa. Now he sees Jesus. Now he sees heaven. And they got even angrier. But I have another quote, and this is from C.S. Lewis, someone who I've used once or twice. Life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but peace in difficulties. You see, if I could say that following him ended all of the troubles of your life, and it took away all the difficulties, boom. We'd have to meet in football stadiums, and they'd be packed. There'd be standing room only, because that's a good deal. You have no more problems, no more taxes, no more troubles. Gas is like 50 cents a gallon. Everything is just easy. Then everybody would want that. I can't say that. In fact, sometimes choosing this life, choosing him, brings extra difficulties. Sometimes the spotlight that you show by living for him makes people angry or takes people out of your life or or it, it causes people to bring pain upon you, all of those things. But it's also the only real peace. And even as he's about to die, Stephen feels that peace because God is there. It's the only real love because that love never changes. No matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, that love never goes away. It's the only real truth. It's the only real hope. It's the only real joy. And our goal, our call is to bring all of that to the world. To have it in here, absolutely. But to bring it out there and to show people, hey, this is the church. This is the life. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for me. And I still have troubles, but he's there in those. And so as hard as things get, they're a little bit easier because he's there. He helps me. He carries me. He goes before me. No matter what we face, he is there. No matter where we are, he is there. That type of assurance is so beyond value. And that's what Stephen felt, even as he's about to die. So let's go to that part. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. And I remind you, these are grown adults that are leaders. They put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Think for a second about this. Picture this. Because this isn't just a group of people. It's not Congress like I joked about. These are the people who knew the entire scripture. 
And I say love God, love others a lot. That actually comes from way back. Jesus said it because it's in the Old Testament. Because God said, hey, this is how you live your life, Israel. This is what you're supposed to do to follow me. And all of the laws came up to that. Helping people, being like him to people, all of that comes from God. And so this wasn't new. This wasn't just the Jesus thing. And so these people that knew that, these people that studied, these people that had everything memorized and looked really nice with their their fancy hats and the gold trim and, and they carried the scripture with them. They put their hands over their ears and went la, 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 and ran at him. Can you even imagine? Imagine if you saw a a church board or pastors or staff or something do that. Would you ever consider going to church again? No. And so they didn't care about the example. They didn't care about what church was. They covered their ears and they ran at him. And what's really interesting to me is the word used for what they did is hormeo, and it's Greek. And I know most of you already knew that, but that's okay. Hormeo, and that, is the, that word was also used at another time when uh, Jesus brought the demon legion out of the guy and into a herd of pigs that ran off into the ocean out of control. And so it's the same word for what the pigs did as what these guys are doing. And it's not calling them pigs. It's saying that they were out of control. It's saying... You think that pigs are unclean and you're acting exactly like this. They no longer cared about God. They cared about what they were. And Stephen is feeling all of this. And yet, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you even imagine that? When someone is being that cruel, that vicious, that angry, that childish, to respond so like Jesus. And let me tell you for a second what stoning is. Because we all kind of have a picture of it. We've all heard the stories of, for example, Jesus saying, Those, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And so we kind of picture somebody holding a little rock and throwing it. I know when I was young, long time ago, uh, I would have rock fights with one of my friends, which just shows you how stupid boys can be. Don't worry, I'm sure girls can be stupid too. That's not what stoning is. I'm going to describe this. So basically, uh, there was a spot, and and the spot where you got stoned was about twice your height down. So there'd be like a a little valley or something filled with rocks, and so twice your height, so 10 to 12 feet uh, down. So it's a drop. And so first, they'd start walking, and about 15 feet away from that spot, so you can see it coming, and you know what's going to happen. They start yelling. The, the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, starts yelling and, and angrily threatening and saying, you're about to die unless you confess, unless you admit that we're right. You're going to die. And so they start screaming and they start describing what's about to happen. And then about six feet away, they strip off his clothes. So Stephen was stripped and embarrassed. And they yell again and say, confess, confess, you're going to die. This is going to kill you. And just terrifying the person and torturing them and yelling. You know, very religiously. And then when you get to the spot, the first witness shoves him from behind with the goal being that he'll fall on his face. And sometimes that killed the person. And if it does, it's obviously over. If he's still alive, the second witness, and again, these are religious leaders, the second witness would come and drop a big stone on his heart. And if that killed him, 
Good. And the whole time they're yelling, confess, confess. Although, after a little bit of that, you can no longer talk. And if that doesn't kill him, then the third one comes, and fourth, and they keep going, and they keep going until it's not just a death. It's torture, and it's cruel, and it's vicious, and these are the people who say, be like us. And yet, whereas they're angry because Stephen just told the truth, Stephen, while he's being tortured and murdered and yelled at and insulted and all of these different things, says, Jesus, forgive them. Now, where could he have gotten that? It's the words of Christ. In his death, he was like Jesus. In his life, he was like Jesus. He shows what the church is supposed to be. He shows who Jesus is, the change, even as he's dying. And his last words had an echo beyond that moment because it makes mention of the fact that Saul was there. And Saul became Paul, but in this moment, he's a member of the angry mob that covered their ears and is gnashing their teeth and yelling and murdering someone for doing nothing wrong. Saul is there, and Saul heard those words. And on the road to Damascus, when Jesus appeared to him, I'm sure he was reminded of those words. And while we can look at this as a great tragedy, and it is for Stephen, we also see that great victory came from that. Through Stephen's sacrifice, through Jesus' change, Saul became Paul, and man, did he do the right thing. You see, this whole problem was because Stephen and the disciples were like, we have to take the message to the Gentiles, to everybody. Jesus is for everybody. And the Pharisees are like, nope. Only for the people we want that come here. And Saul was one of those, and yet he took it to more people than any of them. And so we see that victory can come from anything. We see that joy can come from anything. We see that God works anywhere all the time. And so I have a quote about Stephen. Everyone recognizes that Stephen was spirit-filled when he was performing wonders. Yet he was just as spirit-filled when he was being stoned to death. The Old Testament reading today was Daniel, and we all know that story. We love that story. It's a big part of, of children's church and everything. Because why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den? Because a bunch of jealous people were mad that he prayed and lived for God. And what did he do as soon as the rules got made? You can't do this anymore. He did it. He didn't go out and show up. He didn't try to show up people. He, he, he didn't try to mock people about it. He's just like, I'm going to keep praying. Because I live for God in life, and I live for God in death. And he did that. And we look at that, and we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we look at, at John, and we think how amazing it is when, when they survive all of these things. But there's no difference between them and Stephen, between them and the other apostles, because whether or not you live or die in the faith, living for him is all there is, and that's what they did. Stephen was just as victorious as Daniel just as spirit-filled, just as powerful as Daniel, because Jesus was with him. And even though he fell earlier and more violently, everyone eventually falls. All of us will eventually fall. Now, hopefully not violently, maybe to an illness, maybe to an injury, maybe to, to something unknown, 
hopefully maybe to time, whatever it is. We all eventually fall. And my title, Wherever I Fall, is because wherever you fall, boom, heaven begins right there. Because Stephen, as soon as he died, immediately was in heaven with everyone who had fallen before him, everyone who had given their lives before him, everyone who had died naturally before him. He was there. Everyone who serves God, who serves Jesus, he was there with them. And so our, where, we, where it happens, when it happens, that's not that important because it's going to happen. What's important is what we do in that hyphen between birth and death day. Who we live for, how we show, and our calling, our goal is to take the assurance of that moment of coming up in heaven, awakening in heaven, to everyone we meet in between, showing them a glimpse of that, showing them the peace that comes from that, showing them the hope that comes from that, showing them what the church really is. We are called to do that. We are empowered to do that. And we absolutely can do that. So let's do that. That's all I got.